From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. As our political leaders fight over the proposed national plan to reopen the country, health experts are imploring state and federal governments to learn from the experiences of places like the UK and Israel. But there is another country, closer to home, whose prudent and cautious reopening could prove to be a much better blueprint for Australia. Today, journalist with the Australian Associated Press and contributor to the Saturday paper, Hannah Ryan, on what we can learn from the ongoing global experiment. It's Tuesday, September 7. So, Hannah, for most of the pandemic, Australia has had a very different approach to the rest of the world. We've had few, if any, cases in the community, and we've been relying heavily on international and domestic border closures to essentially keep COVID out. That has changed with the Delta variant. So can you tell me what that means for the future here? Yeah. So in the last couple of weeks, we've had this really big turning point in the pandemic in Australia, where two of the biggest states have conceded or acknowledged that what worked before isn't going to work now. We're all going through the roller coaster ride of emotions as case numbers go up and down. And I don't want us to focus so much on the case numbers going up and down. Absolutely we want to see the case numbers. It started with New South Wales, where Premier Gladys Berejiklian, after weeks and weeks of rising case numbers, conceded that the state was never going to get back down to zero. That's just how the virus works. No amount of government intervention or lockdown is going to get you to zero cases. And she's been shifting the metric to a focus on vaccine numbers, hospitalisations and deaths instead. We just need to look at what, what's happened overseas and our path is different. A lot of countries had thousands of cases a day, got their vaccination rates up and now have seen reduction in hospitalisation. And then perhaps more significantly in Victoria, where obviously they've pursued the longest and strictest lockdowns in the country and really borne the burden of of trying to get down to COVID zero, Dan Andrews made a similar shift. Has become clear and the Chief Health Officer's advice to me and the government has changed, fundamentally changed. We will not see these case numbers go down. They are going to go up. So cases were continuing to rise there despite a really strict lockdown And the government's now all but said that COVID zero is off the table and restrictions are going to be eased when the state reaches certain levels of vaccination. And the federal government is really backing in this uh, approach from Victoria and New South Wales as well. You can't live with lockdowns forever. And at some point, you need to make that gear change. So basically what all of that means is now Australia is at a point where we're accepting, reluctantly, I suppose, that COVID will continue to circulate in the community But if we have high levels of vaccination, then we should be able to limit the health impacts of the virus and the impacts on our hospitals. And so do we know any more about exactly what that could look like? What does it mean to end lockdown and to to ease restrictions with the virus still in the community, but with higher vaccination rates? Yeah, so we do know a a lot about what that looks like because that's how much of the world is now dealing with the virus And one of the most interesting and kind of stark examples is the United Kingdom. We've come to a stage in the pandemic when there is no easy answer and no obvious date for unlocking. They are conducting an experiment in what happens when you just let all restrictions go, you have your high vaccination rates, and just let Delta loose in the community. And it is, of course, only thanks to the vaccine programme that we are able to take 
these cautious steps now. A jab that could protect you and your family and allow you, for instance, to go on holiday. So back in mid-July, Boris Johnson had this Freedom Day where they got rid of basically all COVID-19 restrictions. And that meant handing over responsibility for avoiding infections from the government to the individual. So the individual can decide what they want to do to protect themselves, but the government isn't going to have these like population-wide measures. Because the, uh, the, the legal restrictions have come off, uh, should not be taken as an invitation by everybody uh, simply to have a great jubilee uh, and uh, freedom from, uh, from any kind of caution or restraint. But it wasn't about minimising infections for the UK anymore. And their health secretary, Sajid Javid, actually admitted the decision could lead case numbers to go up to 100,000 a day, which sounds really scary uh, to me sitting here in Australia. So while cases now are ticking up, the number of deaths remains mercifully low and we'll continue to investigate how our vaccines are breaking that link between cases, hospitalizations, and deaths. What he said is that what matters more than anything is actually hospitalisation and death numbers, so they're putting case numbers to one side. And despite a lot of uh, public health experts really worrying about what would happen, they haven't seen this spike in case numbers. And then look now, you've got cases going up very high uh, indeed, but deaths very low. Instead, what they've had is case numbers rising steadily, and they still have tens of thousands of people getting infected every day and, and hundreds of people dying every week. But their hospitalisation numbers are actually at about one-fifth of what it was at that January peak. So in the UK, COVID-19 is becoming what experts now see as the end goal instead of um, what they used to be talking about, herd immunity. Now they're talking about endemicity. So if the virus is endemic, what that means is there's plenty of cases circulating around, but we simply don't care that much. So will have widespread immunity, and that will mean that severe illness, hospitalisation and death will become much rarer, so something much more like the flu. Essentially, what you're saying then is that despite all the fear that surrounded the kind of Freedom Day in the UK leading to, to hospitals being overwhelmed, that actually hasn't happened, and that's largely thanks to the vaccine. So does that bode well for us here then if we reopen at the point where we have 80% of people in Australia vaccinated, which is the current proposal? So that could be what happens, but there is another example that should kind of give us pause, and that's Israel. Israel people were talking about a few months ago as the real shining star, the example that you can vaccinate your way out of the pandemic. Almost half of all Israelis have now received COVID-19 vaccines, thanks to a world-leading inoculation program. And then by April, they pretty much declared that COVID-19 was over, declared victory over it. The country is one of the first developed countries to now be rolling back its latest round of restrictions. They eased back restrictions, they had international travel back, compliance fell away, and they had a vaccine passport scheme and they even got rid of that. Most Israelis living in one of the most vaccinated countries on the planet thought the worst of COVID-19 was behind them. But that actually wasn't enough to defeat the virus. But now the fourth wave has come. By July, they had the Delta variant circulating in the community. And then by the next month, they had thousands of cases every day. Forcing COVID wards back into action. What had happened was they had relatively high vaccination rates. That was right. But that covered up the reality that there were pockets of the population that were undervaccinated. So you had actually low vaccination rates in young people, so people aged between 12 and 20. In the ultra-Orthodox community was another one. 
um, and low vaccination rates also in the Bedouin and other Arab communities. Because the real lesson here is that vaccination alone is not enough. If you're going to have a good COVID-19 defence, yes, you need vaccination, but the Israel experience shows that you need other weapons. But then there is another country uh, that's probably more interesting to Australia that has had a similar trajectory to Australia's. It's taking this kind of approach, a more prudent approach. And it's one that experts think that we should be looking to. And that's Singapore. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro therapy. Yeah, yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hannah, can you tell me a bit more about Singapore's experience with COVID-19 and how that has changed, shifted over time? Singapore's experience has so far been a lot like Australia's in that we've both been trying to get to COVID zero. And for a lot of the pandemic, Singapore has been able to do that. They've had under 100 deaths um, during the whole pandemic. But now their leadership has explicitly acknowledged that that COVID zero approach isn't sustainable a small island country like Singapore can't keep its borders closed forever. And also the Delta variant is just so transmissible that it's not possible. My fellow Singaporeans, good evening again. In Singapore, each time it looks like we've beaten the virus, it breaks through in different places. And a couple of weeks ago, their prime minister made a speech. It's no longer possible to bring COVID-19 cases down to zero, even if we lock down for a long time. Therefore... We must prepare for COVID-19 to become endemic. Saying they want COVID-19 to become something like the chickenpox or the flu, something endemic. Fortunately, with vaccination and added precautions, we can live with the virus and become COVID resilient. So what they're saying now is like 100 to 200 cases a day, um, bubbling away really. They're increasing but only slightly. So it's a real world experiment in how to reopen and throw everything they've learned about public health at it uh, to keep the community safe and then reduce the load on the healthcare system is the critical thing. Okay, can you tell me more about that? What has Singapore learned from the pandemic and how are they putting that into practice as they reopen? Firstly, in Singapore, vaccinations are absolutely essential and they didn't open up anything until they had vaccinations to a really good rate. And I was really taken aback when I heard Singapore's vaccination rate Around 80% of the population is fully vaccinated, and that includes children. So it's not like Australia where we're measuring at 16 and above. Now, Singapore is actually a good example to follow because they've already reached very high levels of vaccination. 
So I spoke with Peter Collignon. He's an infectious diseases doctor and a microbiologist from ANU. And he's been saying that Australia should adopt the Singaporean model. Overall, they've had a lot less lockdowns, um, but they've had um, a lot of restrictions in place, indoor dining numbers, um, a good contact and tracing, um, quarantine, isolation, etc. All of that has been very successful. Life in Singapore is not exactly what I would call normal or free. They've only recently returned to the office. They have 50% of the workforce in the office at any given time and they kind of swap. They have dining in groups of five, but only if everyone is fully vaccinated. Otherwise, it's capped at two people and it has to be in an open air setting. You know, we know this transmits more indoors than outdoors. So you can have a variety of things you let off that is proportionate to the risk of the population. So that's a risk-based measure. Um, It's the kind of thing that Peter Collignon thinks that Australia should embrace. You know, we we need a better risk-based approach, which will be, look, for higher risk, however we define that and check it, you'll have much more things done than if you're from a much lower risk or a low-risk situation. And then, like Australia, they have a quarantine system, but it's slightly different to ours. They have four categories of countries, depending on what the risk is. And Peter Collignon reckons that that's the kind of thing that Australia will embrace in the end as well. Well, I actually think we'll get to the situation where we'll have countries designated as red, orange and green, probably, you know, on risk. And that'll be how much transmission is there and what variants they have. The country's also being smarter about how it monitors vaccine rates. So it's not just looking at the top line national figure, which is the thing that Australia is quite fixated on. I spoke to a public health expert in Singapore and he told me that if they get to an overall figure of 80%, they could hit 80 but that could leave vulnerable groups behind where rates might only be like 50 and 60%, which would make it very dangerous for them if they open their society at that point. So they would see, still see a lot of hospitalizations and deaths if they fully reopened at that point. And that's a bit of a rebuttal of the Israeli experience where the overall vaccination rate was high, but in some communities it was low. And we have parallels to Australia as well, where Aboriginal people outside Victoria are currently vaccinated at a, at a much lower rate than the rest of the population. And so, Hannah, what does all of this mean for Australia? Because we do seem to be inching towards this acceptance that we're not going to be able to keep COVID-19 out of the country forever. And at the moment here, the focus is on vaccination rates. But it does sound like from these international examples, the conversation needs to change and we need to be talking about other measures as well. I think the international experience shows that vaccination is absolutely necessary and at the highest levels possible, but on its own, it's not enough. So you need a range of other public health measures. You need things like masks, contact tracing, surveillance testing, vaccine passports. All of these are going to need to be used depending on what the virus is up to at any given point. And then we've got these really clear warnings from overseas not to be deceived by top-line vaccination numbers, you know, the national level, 70%, 80% figures. We have to have equitable vaccine distribution to avoid difficult outbreaks in unvaccinated groups. Peter Collignon, in fact, thinks that vulnerable groups should be at 95% vaccination. I would think, you know, if you're over the age of 70, I'd like to see 90, 95% plus vaccination. Um, That doesn't mean you don't taking off any restrictions to achieve that, but that should be what we're aiming for. As we move away from COVID zero life, we won't be monitoring COVID-19 infection numbers every day. So we won't have that kind of melodramatic press conference every day where we're waiting for the number at 11am. Instead, we'll be looking at how many people are 
hospitalised, which is how we monitor the flu at the moment. And you've got to remember every year or in a bad year of influenza, 2017, for instance, there were over 1,200 deaths. So we're going to have to, if you like, change the way we look at it. At the moment, it's quite appropriate to say... There are plenty of warning signs from overseas and, like, as usual with COVID, there's plenty to worry about if you're looking for it. The real issue for us, I think, will be, again, winter next year in 2022. And that's where we need to learn from what happens in the UK, Europe, America, Israel, where they've got lots of virus, lots of vaccination, and we need to see, well, what happens in that situation, particularly with hospitalisations and death. What can we learn from there? But I think that looking overseas, there's also some real hope and reassurance. And if we if we avoid those pitfalls and we can learn from those experiences, then hopefully Australia can reach a, a really good point. Mm. And hopefully that also means that at that point we can open up and um, people can come home and others can travel overseas. Yeah, which would be really nice. Mahler's music embodies the very essence of humanity. Experience his epic Song of the Earth with the Australian Chamber Orchestra, Richard Tognetti and internationally acclaimed opera stars Stuart Skelton and Catherine Carby. Opens May 12. Book now at aco.com.au. Also in the news today, Victoria has recorded its highest number of daily COVID-19 cases in over a year, with 246 new cases on Monday. 92 people in the state are currently hospitalised with the virus, but only one of those has been fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the state opposition is in turmoil after frontbenchers Matthew Guy and Tim Smith quit their positions ahead of a planned leadership challenge later this week. And in New South Wales, health officials are expecting cases of between 1,100 to 2,000 a day until mid-September. The state recorded 1,281 cases and five deaths on Monday. I'm Ruby Jones, and a reminder, you can listen to Schwartz Media's new investigative series, Everybody Knows, hosted by me, right now. Search for Everybody Knows in your podcast app. Episode three is out tomorrow. See you then.